Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. We've been really lucky this week to host Professor Jen Gilbert from York University in Toronto as one of the first overseas scholars to physically visit us in Melbourne since the beginning of 2020. So I leapt at the opportunity for a face-to-face chat. Jen is well known for her work around young people, sexuality in schools, so there's heaps to talk about. First off, I was interested how Jen approaches school as a site of sexuality. Most schools can seem quite institutionally bounded places, so I started by asking Jen to outline how she approaches school as a site for her research. So I guess I would say that I'm really interested in how young people experience schools and not just how they experience the institution as it exists, but how they make and remake the school across the course of the day. And that I'm interested in how sexuality threads its way through the hallways and the cafeteria and the locker rooms, but also the social media sites and the teacher's lounge, that, that, that everywhere, everywhere in the hallways and the spaces of the school, sexuality and gender are animating those spaces. We tend to think of sexuality as sort of cordoned off in these very official places, either the health ed- education classroom, uh, anti-bullying policy, a unit in social studies. But in fact, sexuality and gender are just part of what it means to be in uh, a young person in school, well, actually in a teacher in school. And um, and so how can we notice those other informal spots where people are teaching and learning about sexuality? I think that's something I'm really interested in. Yeah, and you've done work on how schools are spaces where both students and teachers experiment with sexuality. I mean, can you give us some examples of the, what your research has looked at there? We have, well, we have a couple great research projects. I'll talk about one in particular where we had this sense that um, – that one of the discourses around sexuality and schooling, especially in relationship to LGBTQ stuff, that's sort of the acronym that we use in Canada, um, was that we can talk about queer and trans issues if that conversation is closely tied to health, to depression, suicidality, academic underachievement, and that these sort of risks of queer and trans sexuality and gender kind of provide an alibi um, for addressing those issues in school. But the unintended consequence of that framing was that to be queer or trans in school all of a sudden became a problem of risk and that other experiences of sexuality and gender get erased. And so um, in one project um, that I'm still working on in in various iterations called Beyond Bullying, we actually physically built a booth in a school, invited people in and said, just come in and tell a story about gender and sexuality. It doesn't even have to be true. And the idea was like, what are the other stories of sexuality and gender that circulate through schools? And one of the things that's amazing to realize is that even students who don't identify as um, sexually or gender diverse have like gay cousins and you know a lesbian pastor and neighbors and watch tv and have like very close intimate relationships with 
people and communities that are queer and trans and that schools aren't taking advantage of those relationships in their discussion around queer and trans stuff. They tend to be sort of caught in that controversy cycle over and over again. So part of the that project was to kind of bring those stories to the fore to, to remind adults that young people are actually at the forefront of conversations about sexuality and gender. So you had to physically build a booth in a school. We did that, yeah. But this year, um, we, uh, we were working in Toronto. We had hoped to build a booth, but then COVID. So we actually built, we had a web designer build an online storytelling portal where um, students would go on, they'd fill out a form, they'd give consent, um, fill out a brief demographic survey, and then be emailed a Zoom link, and then tell a story from wherever they wanted. So an online booth. Because I was going to say, physically building a booth takes a lot of time and effort and resources. How could this kind of thing be scaled up and scaled out within schools so it doesn't take a research team coming in and kind yeah. of... Well, it, it did take resources, but it's not that, actually, it was not that big. In one school, which was sort of like a really great example, the shop class built it for us. So it became part of their, you know, what it meant to contribute to the school community. So it's not, it is a big deal. And I think we were really interested, we sort of pushed back on the idea that this project necessarily represents an intervention into the school. It was much more about what can the school tell us about what's happening? So we weren't really interested. We, we got a lot of questions like, can you make a toolkit for us? Can you make this into a program? We were sort of anti-turning this into some pedagogical initiative because the whole point was not that this project wasn't attached to the school and it wasn't about teaching people to be kinder or more tolerant. It was really about like, okay, well, what's going on? So, I mean... The tactic there is to kind of work around the edges in a way of the formal school, the formal mm. curriculum. And have you done work that actually tries to address full on things like the, the formal school curriculum and the way that kind of, as you say, health is taught and sex education is taught? Because that's a completely different space to be working in. Yeah. I mean, not really in the sense that only to critique it. So I don't think, um, I think we, you know, sex education curriculum sort of sits at the center of so many controversies. But if we actually think about what's important in schools around what young people learn about sexuality and gender, it's such a tiny piece of their educational experience. It's like in Canada, I mean, it's like three classes or one unit. It's so small. And why, are, is, like, why is that the place that we sort of focus all of our activist attention? There are so many other places where we could intervene. But you write about sexuality as a kind of volatile, enlivening force in yeah. schools rather than a threat. I mean, can you kind of expand on that idea a little bit? How, how can sexuality be a kind of um, a way of invigorating schools? Well, I suppose that my, because my training in my doctoral work was in psychoanalysis, I had kind of move, like sort of begin with this idea of sexuality, not as an identity or as an action or behavior and more as a relation and that sexu sexuality as a relation is that force that attaches us to the world, to our, to others, to um, to the social. And so, um, really thinking about sexuality actually is as very akin to curiosity. So, as soon as you shut down sexuality, you know the the unintended effect is that you are also shutting down all our, you know, our questions and. Um, explorations of the world in general. And so 
um, there is this way in which education relies on our capacity to be interested, to be attached, to fall in love with ideas, to be interested, have crushes on authors, to you know, passionately pursue certain lines of inquiry. But as soon as that gets attached to sexuality, we have to you know, put it in a box. Now, the way you've just talked about sexuality there is in completely kind of terms, no one would disagree with the idea of being curious and interested in all this. But as a topic, I guess it's when you actually kind of present it as a, as a researcher to other academics, I mean, there is probably a tendency to, to kind of clean up elements of your research. I mean, do you find yourself doing that? Is this a topic where you, you kind of find yourself having to hold yourself back when you kind of write for journals or you kind of go for tenure? And I don't worry about tenure. And I, I'm really grateful to be working in a university context where I have a lot more freedom, I think, than my Australian colleagues, to be honest, around this. So I am funded, um, but, the, but the funders in Canada are really open to all sorts of kinds of research. Certainly, I mean, this, this, this move towards impact and outputs is there. But my hope, and I think this is reflected in the funders' decisions and priorities, is that we're thinking really creatively about what those are. Um, so I tend to think more now about audience I know that I've been studying sex education for a really long time, and so I have things to offer certain audiences. But the things that I have to offer aren't necessarily like answers, but like new sets of questions. I sort of imagine around sexuality and sex education that I'm bringing my own curiosity. I work a lot with teachers, um, professional development, but also in teacher education. And I think the most important thing we can offer teachers is a space for them to ask questions about what it might mean to teach sex education or to, to meaningfully include queer and trans issues in their classroom or to support students who might fall outside the norm. I, and I think for myself, I was, I was remembering that when I was working on this other research project with teachers and um, I had this idea, like we really must work at saying the words lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, out loud, so that they don't feel like slurs. But I knew that in my own practice as a professor, I had, I had, I realized that I had maybe gone three or four years without saying the word lesbian in a lecture, right. even though I was teaching texts with lesbian characters, even though I myself identify as lesbian, I had somehow censored myself. And now I was going out to these teachers and I was saying, and you must do X, Y, and Z. I mean, I still think it's important to say those words, but I think I have a, a better recognition of how, of what sort of the emotional uh, uh, stakes are. And this idea of not coming up with solutions, but pointing out problems and just saying things out loud, I think is a really kind of important thing that kind of academic researchers should kind of <laughs> own a bit more and kind of take a bit more pride in. We don't yeah. just have to, as you say, come up with a problem. But I guess this area of research, when you talk to, say, the public, when you talk to the mm. press, when you talk to the media, I mean, this is a kind of a, the kind of topic which I guess could come under the, the current culture wars and everything else. Mm-hmm. To what extent are you finding that you're getting pushback from the kind of the broad, these broader audiences? And how do you engage? Well, to be honest, I, my university gave me media training and it sounds so silly, but it's been really, really helpful because I was not trained to talk to the media. I was trained to, you know, do close readings of text. And, and then all of a sudden you're talking to a journalist and they are like, I just need a soundbite here. And so, um, 
that was really helpful because I do have things to say. Mm. And I think it's really important to include researcher, academic, scholarly perspectives in these debates around sex education. Um, but you have to find, you have to kind of find a way in. Um, and that, that the media training was really helpful. So I talked to the media a lot. Um, they, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, there's a controversy. You know, we need a professor. So that, you know, comes up. I think that when that happens, I try and have, you know, just two or three points. And really my points are always the same. It's like, you know, um, sexuality is a human right. What do we do to meaningfully include young people's various futures and possibilities in our classrooms so that we keep open as many doors as possible? Um, that we have a responsibility to support all students, regardless of what their gender and sexuality are. And, um, and that they, that's basically it. I mean, that's all, <laughs> that's really the, that's really the nuts and bolts, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the best media training I got was exactly the same, write down five things and say them regardless of what you're asked. It doesn't even matter what the, I'm, I'm doing it today, Neil. I don't even care what the question is. I got my notes. <laughs> no, no, no. Clearly this is a spontaneous conversation. <laughs> Now, we've talked about Beyond Bullying. We've talked about some of your previous research. I'm always really interested in what people are just beginning to think about. What's coming down the horizon in three or four years' time? What are you just beginning to get interested in and think might be something to kind of, you know, do in the, the, the rest of the decade? Well, that's a great question. I think going back to that idea of sex education and its intellectual histories is something I'm really interested in. I think that um, the field is so white it's so dominated by white women in particular, it, both um, as researchers, but also as, as advocates and practitioners. And I'm interested in how the history of sex education sort of sets that up. So I'm doing some work around looking at the various movements, sort of um, pre-HIV and post-HIV around sex education in schools and how that's been shaped by these various histories. So that's something I'm thinking about. And then I'm working on a project that's just gotten started that's looking at the ways that COVID has reframed how risk is understood in sex education. So just to give an example, at the beginning of COVID, before COVID, we tended to talk about, for instance, like sexting, sharing pictures of yourself nude with your partner was a high risk activity. Now, once COVID comes, all of a sudden that becomes a low-risk sexual activity and something innocuous like kissing becomes high-risk. And so we we're just finishing up a big study, actually, that um, looks at young people, young women, racialized and queer trans in Melbourne, uh, Toronto, and New York, asking them to offer us sort of an accounting of their risk-taking and, and risk-avoiding over COVID. And so that's that's been really interesting too. It's fascinating how risks suddenly came to the fore during COVID. I know. And, you know everyone was talking about the risks of science, rediscovering this stuff from the eighties that we'd kind of forgotten about. Yeah, yeah, and and re rethinking. I mean, I think that there's like a new risk calculus, mm -hmm. and that um, we're all as you know living in this COVID world, m making very conscious decisions about our riskiness. You know, and one of the things that's interesting, actually, about the data we have so far is that of the risks that these young people have taken, overwhelmingly, they um, describe those risks as worth it. So 
you know, one, we're kind of coming at this idea of risk from a concept in disability studies called the dignity of risk, that risk is really important to our sense of ourself as autonomous people, and especially in adolescence, that it's really tied to these developmental tasks. So how do we hold open the possibility of risk-taking in a pandemic? It's really a hard question. And it, I mean, it's hard for us as educational researchers to kind of wrap our heads around as adults, as parents. I mean, it's 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 so, I don't know, that's my next project, I guess. Well, that's going to keep you busy, for, I think, for a few years to yeah, come right? anyway. Well, I mean, fantastic. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk, Jen. It's been really interesting. Good Thank luck. Thank you. Okay.